more deep into the heart of the retreat. And my topic this afternoon is what has come to be known as the three marks of existence, or the three marks of human experiential existence. Before I go into that, I want to tell a little story and talk about kinds of marks that the Buddha did not find significant in people, or did not find determinative of people's worth. There was a point in the Buddha's lifetime where he got to be a very popular teacher. And um, when he wandered in India, as he did, teaching from place to place, going on foot, he would be followed by large swaths of, of people who were dedicated to him. And some of these sort of ancient highways, like wide dirt roads, I imagine them, right? And he wasn't the only one traveling, and his followers weren't the only ones traveling. So at times they would sort of merge with other spiritual teachers and their followers, or just random village people, or whatnot. And on one of these occasions, the Buddha was traveling, and there were some um, people students of other spiritual teachers sort of in the mix, in the background. And there are these two students, Vasetha and Vajrabhada, or Bhajra, who were arguing about um, how people, the caste of people was determined, the true worth of people was determined. They were arguing back and forth, and they weren't coming to any conclusion about this, so they decided to go to this other spiritual teacher, the Buddha, not one of theirs, to resolve it. And um, the context of that is that in the ancient caste system in India that was present at that time, is present to this day, very strong at that time, the Buddha had created, developed an alternative among his followers, everyone was spiritual friends. Everyone was considered to be an equally valid person. And the distinctions between them were in their spiritual maturity, in their ethics, and how kindly they showed up, in the way that they um, expressed wisdom, integrity, compassion, freedom. So this is the context in which these young men are coming to ask the Buddha about the marks of a person that matter. And he says, I'll explain it to you accurately and in sequence. The taxonomy of living creatures for species are diverse. And then he talks about knowing the grass and the trees. Though they lack self-awareness, they're defined by birth. Species are diverse. And he goes on to talk about different insects, bugs, moths, ants, and termites. That they are defined by their species, their birth. Quadrupeds, snakes, fish, all these creatures of different habitats defined by their birth, their marks, their significant characteristics, defined by birth. And he says, the birds, all of them, 
are defined by birth, but humans, the differences between humans are not defined by their birth. They're not defined by that. Instead, and he goes on to do quite a comprehensive negation, they are not defined by the hairs in the head, nor the ears, nor the eyes. They're not defined, humans aren't, by mouth, or nose, or lips, or their brows. They're not defined by their shoulders, or neck, or belly, or back, or their gender characteristics. They're not defined by hands, or feet, or lack thereof, I'll add, nor by their knees or thighs, nor by their color, nor by their voice. Here, birth makes no distinctive mark. In human bodies themselves, nothing distinctive can be found that ranks them. Distinction in this way among people is purely verbal designation, purely concept. So the Buddha was debunking this idea that people were born into a certain caste or race or ethnicity that defined their worth, that could be used to divide them from awakening, from spiritual maturity. And instead, he supported other forms. He put importance on other forms of marks, but they weren't physical marks necessarily. They were, as I said earlier, what came to be known as the marks of experiential existence. Insights. How people develop. So, broadly speaking, can say that the three insights, these three marks, they later came to be known as the tilakana, three marks. They were first known as marks of perception, distinctions of perception of how we view the world, how we move through the world. And they are inconstancy or anicca, dukkha, suffering, pain, dis-ease, and not-self, anatta. And these are insights that are not directly cultivated by asking for them or diving into them, but they're rather emergent, cultivating them broadly. And they're part of a larger kind, you know, this is insight meditation, right? And I want to make a distinction. They're not the same as another very important form of insight that many people experience on retreat, which is psychological insight. This can be hugely important and common to many, many people. For example, insight into the way my own upbringing colors how I approach the world. Insight into how fear might control my behavior and how letting go of fear might completely shift me. Those are profound forms of self-understanding. And they're not exactly what the Buddha was talking about. 
They're not these Buddhist insights. Though the Buddhist insights of inconstancy, suffering and not-self can deeply support opening on these levels. The Buddhist insights of spiritual maturity are more of a common denominator experience of humanity, human understanding more broadly. Instead of becoming experts in a subject area or deeply expert in ourselves, we become very wise and know a lot about something that's common to everyone in their experience. It's a different kind of wisdom in a way. You know something about everything. It's helpful to think of these in terms of layers, these insights. I think of them almost in two layers, and then there's the second layer can open people up to freedom, to awakening, different aspects of awakening. And the Dharma, Buddhism, doesn't own these. As an interfaith hospital chaplain, I had the real privilege of encountering wise people of all religious traditions and no religious tradition. And often they had deep insight in this first layer, this more general layer, because they'd gotten wise to meeting the world in ways that gave them a very open heart, a grounded understanding, a wisdom about relating to people. So, for example, working in a hospital, there was a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. And some people related to it in a form of, understandably, spiraling down, experiencing division from others with their pain. And other people met it as a transformative process. And often the people who met it as a transformative process had assisted others through their pain, had been able to meet it deeply in themselves. So they'd never meditated a day in their life, but they'd become deeply wise to the way that pain can become a doorway to compassion, to understanding, to love. And then there's the inconstancy, anicca, of our lives and our world, right? I remember as a young person, I met, this is a a sort of a distant relative, I think of him as an uncle, he's not exactly an uncle. And this man had traveled all around the world, all around the world. He was sort of a former hippie and had just gone and done these amazing things, been in the Peace Corps, all of this stuff. He had seen so many changes in so many different cultures so many different ways of being, that there was this wisdom. He didn't cling to a lot of concepts about people, but he kind of took them for who they were. And there was this openness and this appreciation in him. So he had encountered the inconstancy of how culture shapes us, the inconstancy of his own life, and learned a certain kind of trust through his travels and his service. 
And then there's all these clear forms of inconstancy of change in our lives, the seasons, the weather, our own aging processes, right? It's all around us. It's not hard to see. And in this broader kind of simple, mature way, there are ways of not clinging to self-identity, not clinging to self-identity in ways that are harmful to ourselves or others, right? There's um, the ability to step fluidly in and out of a role. Maybe a mother one moment, a sister the next, a daughter the next, for example. And the ways of meeting the world with a fluid sense of self an open sense of self that can develop from a certain kind of self-confidence. And then there's also the level of not fixed, solid, concretized idea of me and who I need to be by the understanding that we have oceans in our veins. We evolved Our genetics are vast. Our cultures are vast. There's this sense of place in humanity. Larger sense of place in the world. So all of these are ways that anyone, Dharma practitioner or not, can access these understandings. And there are some basic insights that come out of this level. The insight of dukkha is don't make things worse. Just don't layer a bunch on top, right? Be with it honestly and compassionately long enough to see what kind of approaches to life bring happiness, enduring happiness, and what kinds don't. At this more basic level, anicca and constancy is everything changes, right? Everything, everything changes. And not self, not taking things quite so personally. It's not necessarily always about me. So, all that said, there are also certain kinds of experiential wisdom that come from meditation practice that are available more after a few days of retreat, after getting quiet, sitting. Again, dukkha, anicca, anatta. And this is where it might be helpful that while the three marks of experiential existence are sometimes taught as belief propositions, from a meditative perspective, it can be more helpful to feel into what is emergent in your own experience, what you notice moment to moment, rather than a belief that I need to adopt or blindly adhere to, or 
to center or shape my experience around. I don't need to do that. These three experiential insights, they're not beliefs to cultivate, they're not things we need to make happen. In fact, they kind of can't be directly cultivated, except on a conceptual level. Instead, it's helpful to cultivate qualities that allow you to absorb the most wisdom and the most fruitful progress towards freedom if they happen to emerge, if we touch into them at any given point in time. My mentor, Gil Fronstall, talks about cultivating inner qualities that are opposite of these three marks, three perceptions, characteristics, as supports for them. So I'm just going to run through these. I've personally found it very helpful to cultivate. It's kind of their opposites in a way in order to more deeply enter into these gateways, gateways to freedom. So the first, to prepare for or deepen an understanding of suffering, dukkha, it's really helpful to cultivate well-being as best you can. Cultivate a sense of well-being within. And this can be through Appreciating your own generosity, appreciating moments of ethical integrity. It can be through cultivating metta, compassion, and the other immeasurables or Brahma Viharas, and savoring them. It can be helpful to cultivate a sense of samadhi, settledness, concentration as a form of starting to develop that inner wellspring of well-being. And it can be helpful to cultivate trust, deep trust. This comes to a point I've talked about earlier, and I think Bob has touched on it too, of, of how we relate to experiences. This poem captures for me how longing, wanting can become trust. Think of the black pole warbler. She tips the scales at one ounce before she migrates, taking off from seacoast to our east, flying higher and higher, ascending two or three miles during her 80 hours of flight. Until she lands in Tobago, north of Venezuela, three days older and weighing half as much. She flies over open ocean almost the whole way, this little tiny bird. She's not so different from us. The arc of our lives is a mystery too. We do not understand. We cannot see what guides us on our way. That longing that pulls us towards the light. Not knowing, not knowing we fly onward, hearing the dull roar of the waves below. This not knowing, 
this trust, a trust of a longing for freedom, of a sense of homing, that can be a compass too. The wanting itself can be the message sometimes. The second quality to to sort of prepare for open heart and mind to these deep insights is to prepare for inconstancy by cultivating stability and stillness. This is another place that samadhi, concentration, settledness can be very helpful. It's also cultivating more simply the stillness of that still mountain pool that Bob talked about this morning. (coughs) To allow our minds to just let what's coming through come through, these strange and wonderful creatures of the mind. They might even be scary sometimes, but if you let them pass through, they keep going. There's also a kind of confidence, a kind of self-reliance that can be cultivated through just being with ourselves. I used to live near a yoga studio that had this um, placard out that I found really helpful. It said, confidence isn't trusting that everything will be okay. It's trusting that no matter what happens, you'll be okay. There are no guarantees. We all know that. And then to prepare for, to deepen an understanding of a not fixed, solid, unchanging self, not self, cultivating efficacy, integrity, self-knowledge can be incredibly helpful. I also want to name here that the teaching of not-self, anatta, isn't necessarily a helpful lens for everyone at every stage of their development. Many of us were challenged early in our lives and maybe didn't have an opportunity to fully inhabit a sense of self. And so it's so valuable, so important to spend time cultivating that self-trust, that self-love, a sense of a strong, resilient selfhood in order to allow the experiential insight of the conditions that form us, the ever-changing, non-fixed self to be felt in a way that is nourishing and not scary. So it's not cheating to spend a lot of time cultivating confidence, integrity, self-knowledge. Master A.H. Dogen says, to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to become one with myriad beings. To let go into the all. But the studying the self comes first, often, hopefully. 
also in um, ancient India, and I believe this is even true in current India, there's the um, title, epithet, Maha-atta, Great Self. It was an epithet for Gandhi, among others. That there's an acknowledgement that there's the larger self, the expansive self. It can be cultivating a sense of belonging to ourselves, cultivating a sense of belonging to the world, to nature, to the universe. And cultivating a loving acceptance, or at least acknowledgement of foibles that we all have. We all have different ones, many of us, or basic human ones. But to be appreciative even of the flaws that make us human, right? Even of the mistakes from which we learn. This poem is by Galway Canal, St. Francis and the Sow. The bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower, and retell it in words and in touch that it is lovely. Retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, Blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length, from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine, down through the great broken heart, to the sheer milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths sucking and blowing beneath them. The long, perfect loveliness of sow. To reteach the parts of us that maybe we've ignored our loveliness. So these qualities, this self-appreciation, self-confidence, trust, integrity, self-knowledge, and stillness, noticing and appreciating even the tiniest little bits of goodness, generosity, ethic, behavior, moments of kindness and compassion. All of these are resources as the path, as development, as the practice unfolds, continues.
So it's really helpful. And the Buddha teaches about appreciating and cultivating these qualities, not dismissing them, not denigrating them, not picking them apart, or blowing them off as, oh, but, but then I was awful then. Like, but really noticing them as boons on the path, boons and supports. So this brings us to the second layer of these three perceptions, these marks. And I call this the Vipassana layer. It's the direct experience through meditation. For the purposes of freedom, for the purposes of meditation, it can be beautiful to see these qualities in the world. But what's most helpful is to turn back inward and understand them as ways we perceive moment-to-moment experience. And they can be experienced in many, many different ways by different people. And the insights themselves kind of universal qualities of human perceptual experience. I'll add too, I'm about to make to give some descriptions of ways these might look, but to assure you that they may look completely different than what I describe, and that's okay. And the point isn't to see them in of themselves. The point is to metabolize experience, whatever it is, in ways that loosen up clinging and craving and suffering and begin to bring us more towards equanimity, freedom, gratitude for what is, peace, awakening. It can even be helpful these perceptions in developing a healthy dispassion to release deeper and deeper layers of knots and clinging in the body, the mind, the psyche. So in constancy, anicca, in the perceptual process, can feel like in the body sensations of raindrops falling on puddles or a lake where there's gaps between the drops and maybe ripples between the drops. Sometimes visually can look like there's a bit of a stutter in the film frame of our lives or a little bit of pixelation in the screen, moving, shifting, scintillating. One teacher I respect deeply, um, Upandita, one of the Burmese teachers, describes um, watching someone with a fire wand. All of you have probably seen some version of this, whether it's a glow stick or a fire juggler, where it's just a torch if you're holding it, but then when they start to move it around and around and around, it becomes a circle or a figure eight, a line, often a beautiful gesture that's static. But if you look closely, you can see the flicker. And when it slows down, you can see all these little moments of the torch moving. Inconstancy. Gaps of perception. 
some of the easiest places for some people to perceive this is the arising and the passing away of a sound. Not just the arising and passing away of a sound itself, the sound of my voice, the sound of a distant car, a bird, but perhaps all of the little comings and goings, the striations, the gaps within the sound itself. You can hear it in the bells sometimes. It'll have this like wave to it. To notice those gaps. They're worth noticing. Early in my practice, the most significant gaps I noticed were in my pain. I had chronic pain very badly when I started practicing. And it felt like this solid block. It was like the illusion of fixity was there. The illusion of permanence was very strong. And it felt like it was present all the time. But as the mindfulness got stronger, it became clear there were little tiny gaps within the pain. It would come back. But there were little moments where there was no pain at all. And those were moments of freedom, freedom from the pain. And eventually, through appreciating the gaps, they grew until there was real joy in these moments. So mind the gap, mind the gaps. Another really beautiful place to notice it is when attending to the in-breath and the out-breath, if breathing is your anchor of attention, there are all these differences in the subtle parts of the inhale, the top of the inhale, and the subtle parts of the exhale, the end of the exhale. It can be all a fluid flow. That's also inconstancy. In one way or another, some people feel sort of striations or shifts in their belly or abdomen. But that constant contact with it, like a woodworker, a lathe turner, constant contact with the wood, helps us notice those little gaps, little bits of inconstancy. It can be pleasant Vedana, pleasant feeling tone, or unpleasant, depending on what the gap is and how we're relating to it. The Buddha really um, emphasizes noticing these, in part because if there's an insight in this area, an insight into these gaps, it's possible to see how we've maybe a person has been holding a concept of an overlay and treating it as reality, rather than the constantly fluxing, shifting, changing nature of experience. Next insight. Into dukkha, pain. This is seeing, as I talked about before, any added layers of suffering we add to our experience. Most of you are familiar with the teaching of the second arrow. If a person is hit with one arrow, it hurts. If they're hit with a second arrow, it hurts a lot more. The second arrow is often a self-inflicted wound of judgment, 
blame, self-blame, recrimination, the cycling and looping of thinking that's directed in ways that amplify rather than decrease what's bothering us. In working as a chaplain, it became very clear the universality and the seriousness of human suffering. And it also became clear that having a sense of acknowledgement and simplicity with it was a huge boon to people. I remember on one long shift, I'd encountered a number of people who were dying, and two of them couldn't have been more different than night and day. One person was fighting the entire process, denying it, angry, and having recriminations with people from their far past until the very end. It was a very, very unpleasant process for them. Two hallways over, there was someone who was glowing with gratitude for their life. They weren't ready necessarily in a classic sense. They were younger than one would want to be. And they were relating to the dying process as yet another way of stepping into something bigger than themselves. They weren't adding to the suffering of their dying. They were just, matter of fact, this is happening. I wonder what happens next. No way to know until it happens. Ajahn Chah talks about suffering as rope burn. In other words, suffering is trying to hang on when the rope, reality, is moving through our grasp faster or heavier than we can hang on. The solution is to let go. We can't always do it. But to let go, not hold on so tight. In other words, to deeply acknowledge what is, to be there. With dukkha as well, there's this impersonal nature of it. All of us experience human life through birth, aging, sickness, death. Dukkha is not an accident. It's a part of the evolution of our, our lives. And it's how we relate to it and how we're able to face it that can make it complicated or incredibly difficult or simple. Simpler. And this is where it shades into that universality of understanding that everyone experiences it starts to shade into the impersonal nature of anatta, not self the not taking things personally, processes upon processes.
our lives are processes upon processes. It's like that magic show I was describing a couple of days ago, right? All of human existence, all of our subjective experience is this kind of magical confluence of seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, thinking, feeling. All of it just kind of together. And there are times where seeing these processes in action can be something very beautiful because they're shared processes with most other sentient life. Some people or some beings, some species are missing one sense or another. But we're interlinked in this kind of surfing through the energy of life. All of these different conditions that can bring life to be. I read something recently, I I subscribed to a science journal, and um, it was talking about how in some ways life evolved from the aggregating of all these little microbes within us that collaborated and kind of got together and formed more and more complex forms of intelligence over (coughs) millennia. We are walking ecosystems of collaboration, basically. Not always collaboration. Sometimes there's arguments in there, right? But it's kind of amazing. All of these conditions. The Buddha talks about this in different ways. He talks about the self being like foam on a river or even at times on the ocean that can look very solid and substantial, but it just can shift, change, go away. Or like a cloud moving through the sky, or the form changes with the weather or in its trajectory. And we change too. The weather patterns of our lives and the conditions around us. We're in this constant evolving dance Another simile that the Buddha uses is um, there's uh, plantain trees, banana trees, where the trunk looks solid, but if you actually start, if you could peel, it's quite hardened, or if you saw open the trunk, it's just a series of hardened leaves that have come to form that trunk. And in the middle, it's hollow, there's no core. The teachings here are about a corelessness, that there's all of these myriad conditions coming together quite beautifully, emerging in these beautiful, unique, distinct life forms, each of us, precious in their own way, and also conditioned, and also emergent properties of these things that come together that will again fall back into everything at the end of our lives. Fall back into the all. This is from a yogi practicing. 
an insight arose in this area. This is sort of an insight into inconstancy and not self simultaneously. And they say these bodies, these lives, are processes of processes, fluxes of fluctuations, bundles of bundles coming together in specific conditions, forming preferences, relationships, all the while through, pouring through and interacting with thousands of other conditions unfolding all around us. On this level, nothing is to be lost or gained. Even the breakup of materials at the, at the body, mind, death, is part of this ever-changing constant flow. These gathered together impulses of love, appreciation, and wisdom, as well as their opposites, greed, hatred, and delusion. On that ultimate level, the dispersal of these conditions and impulses back into the universe is nothing to fear. If anything, it is the ultimate relaxation back into the primordial flux from each, from which each life emerged. So it's helpful to appreciate moments of touching in to these forms of insight or other forms of insight. These are three classic ones, and they're not the only ones. This second layer, this vipassana layer, percolates more broadly and more deeply into more and more facets of our hearts and our minds the more we practice and the more it's possible to let go of the stress or tension in thinking and in the way I relate to the world or you relate to the world. Insights aren't badges or adornments or things to put on a mental shelf or things to make a self out of. Instead, they're different way of relating, an openness, an openness of relating. As soon as we try to grasp them, the fist of our mind tightens. We've lost it. We open the hand of the heart, of the mind. It's absolutely beautiful what can flow through. At the deepest level, these three insights are gateways to freedom, to awakening. So there's the sort of everyday world wisdom layer, there's this vipassana layer, and then there are these openings. I think of them as gateways, doorways. And at those levels, the insight into dukkha, suffering, becomes a certain kind of wishlessness, desirelessness, Complete contentment with the way things are. The insight into anicca and constancy is this absence of any internal fixity of concepts at all. And the anatta, the not-self, 
is the beauty of a heart and a mind empty of constrictions, empty of suffering, caused by self-based constructions of mind. It opens up this huge flow of freedom, intelligence, spaciousness. It's when we get out of our own way, right? The flow. Carl Sagan says, we are a way for the universe to know itself. In the moments of anatta, not self, that can be crystal clear. There's no impediment between the universe knowing and the universe known. So that flow is a no thing, nothing to hold on to, any more than you can grasp a river. It's an absence of greed and hatred and delusion. And close with the spontaneous Vajra song by Venerable Lama Gendun Rinpoche. Some of you have no doubt heard this. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body, mind, has no real importance at all, has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment on ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good or bad experiences. They're like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. And as soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there. Open inviting, comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further, looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo. Nothing to force nothing to want, and nothing missing. Marvelous. Everything happens by itself.
let sit for a minute. Simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears, again and again, time without end. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Everything happens by itself. 